I want to lead today with the first of a couple of confessions here this morning. Um, my first confession is this. When I walked into the room last week, and, and uh, I ended up having some building envy. Um, the catalyst for my coveting last week was when we came in, there was this beautiful set behind us that it was up there from the Ace in the City banquet. They had this really cool backdrop, and, and it got me thinking. The reason I was coveting there is I was thinking, man, what could we do if we weren't doing church out of a suitcase? You know, we have such talented people here. Can you imagine how we would raise that level of excellence if we didn't have to set up and tear down every week? So my mind started going down that path. And as my mind was going down that path, I felt the Spirit leading me to a verse here. And I want to show you. I believe the Spirit just gave me a little phrase. But that phrase comes from this bigger verse. Now, for you, those of you who weren't here last week, uh, we've been looking at uh, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It comes from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's a collection of teachings by Jesus. And out of it, we've been having a series called Light Where You Are. How do we shine brightly together? Well, here's, this is, comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And it says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Even non-believers do that. Now, the way it played out in my head was I heard the phrase, even the pagans do that. And what that meant to me, you know, you know a little phrase can just mean so much if it, when you hear it. For me, that little phrase, it, it meant, okay, hey, excellence is important. Excellence is so important, especially here in, in, in the northeast suburbs. Excellence matters. And, and one of the things that should be true of us, we should have a level of excellence that meets or exceeds the level of excellence around us. That's, that's part of discipleship, and, and I was already there before I heard that little phrase. But there should be more that sets us apart from businesses in this area than the color of our logo or the goods and services we offer. There should be more than that because even the businesses, even if they're not a Christian owner, they're pursuing excellence and they're trying to do things well. So what sets us apart? So that was part of that loaded thing in my head. And the same thing is true for volunteering and being generous. Should we volunteer and be generous? Absolutely. But go to most of the businesses around here. They have a charity, right? They encourage volunteerism among their employees, most of them. So what is it about us that is beyond that? How, how do we shine as Jesus wanted us to shine? The quality of our ministry and the quality of our generosity, it matters. But I believe that Holy Spirit, little prompting there, wants to stretch us beyond cultural norms. Stretch us beyond that. And consider the counter-cultural qualities that Jesus described in his Sermon on the Mount. Now, this Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at, it is as countercultural today as it was when he gave it in the Middle East in the first century. It is countercultural. If we live by these principles, we are going to look very, very different. So let's dig into that. Let's see you know, what God has for us here in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. This is the passage I want to start with today. This is from that Sermon on the Mount. It's familiar to many of us, but I feel like this is where we should start here today. I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. Every year, or every year, every week, we have a stack of them there at the tables at that entrance, that entrance. They're there for you. So please take one if you don't have a Bible. It is a gift uh, from God to you. All right, here we go. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 says this. 
you, and when Jesus is talking, this is you plural, meaning all these people. Jesus is, when he's giving this Sermon on the Mount, he is on a mountaintop. And so he's sharing this with this crowd gathered all around him. You are the salt of the earth, he says to these people. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under foot. Okay, what does this have to do with what I'm talking about? Excellent salsa. Well, let me first start by, by sharing what I've heard a lot of people do with this passage. I've heard this a number of times where people have said, okay, here's, here's how you can interpret this passage. Here's this illustration God gave us. He says, you're the salt of the earth, right? And they said, now here's the thing about salt. A little salt is good. But what happens if you've got a delicious hamburger, right, and you pour too much salt on it, right? You've got too much salt. Now, something that was good is making a really big mess. All right, now something that was good is oversalted. And then what they do is they say, okay, now that's how it should be with us. That's how it should be with us, that we shouldn't all be clustered together inside church walls. We should be out there, you know, spreading the good news and all this. Now, did Jesus say we should go? Yes, he did. Go make disciples of all nations. So should we, should we be spreading the word? Yes. But is that the point that Jesus is making here? No, not at all. That's not the point Jesus is making in this passage. Jesus gives the point that he's making in this passage. He says, unsalty salt is worthless. That's the point that Jesus is making in this passage. Unsalty salt is worthless. As I was doing some preparation for this week, I came across this um, from one of my sources. One of my commentaries said this, and they were commenting on this, this verse from a historical context. They said, unsalty salt is a contradiction in terms. It's like water losing its wetness. It is not salty. It is not, if it's not salty, it is not salt. But salt used in the ancient world was seldom pure salt as we know it like this. Salt in the ancient world was uh, collected from the Dead Sea, and it contains a mixture of other minerals. And it is possible to imagine that true salt content, if it was washed out, would leave behind this useless, useless residue. In other words, you're, you're collecting salt, you're collecting this substance from the Dead Sea. If the salt isn't in there, all you got is like dust, right? And dirt. It's not salty. It's, it's useless. In any case, the commentary went on to say, Jesus is not teaching chemistry. And the ludicrous imagery of trying to salt that which should itself be the source of saltiness is a powerful indictment of disciples who have lost their distinctiveness and so no longer have anything to contribute to society. In this passage, Jesus' point is, is there something that makes you different? Do you taste different? Is there something about you that is qualitatively different than the other substance around you? Are you distinct? Is there something that sets you apart? One of the great spiritual thinkers and writers of our day was a man named Dallas Willard. And he was once asked if anything ever got him down. And here's what he said. Wow, this is a harsh word here. He said, I'll tell you what gets me down. He says, it bothers me that Christ followers require so much prompting and cajoling to do God's work in the world. I know many pastors, they must beg people to show up for events. They must beg people to use their God-given spiritual gifts to further his kingdom. They must beg people to read their Bibles and pray and tithe. Churches spend thousands of dollars producing emotional videos to move people and to care for the poor because if they didn't show those videos, the congregations wouldn't really care for the poor. He's describing an unsalty group of people. A group of people who, it's like the pastor's up here and he's taking salt and he's like throwing it on them, hoping someone's going to stay there until next Sunday. 
Well, if, if we're up here throwing salt, right? We're just throwing salt trying to make people salty who aren't salty. How long is that salt going to stay on you? You won't, you won't even make it to the parking lot, right? Because it's coming from the outside. Um, Josiah, at the first service, we have a guy, Josiah, he's great. He said, yeah, it's like you're assaulting us, right? And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in a congregation where you're feeling assaulted because someone's just belligering you, saying, do this, do this, do this, do this, instead of it's got to come from within. If you're not salty, it doesn't matter how much the person in the front says. They're just going to be assaulting you. Is, it, is there something in you that's different? Has the Spirit of God changed you from within? Have you allowed God to change your heart and change your mind so that you're qualitatively different than the world around us? Yep, we're pursuing excellence. Yep, we're volunteering. Absolutely. We're giving generously. Hey, that's the basics. Is there something different, qualitatively different within us? I believe that's the point that Jesus is making in this passage. And if there's a whole lot of you together, that's a good thing because you can shine brightly. We'll get to that in a second. Here's John Wesley, what he says about this. He was an 18th century evangelist. He said, there is no holiness but social holiness. If you're a believer and you're like, well, my faith is a personal, private thing, it better be personal. But if it's only private, it is not authentic Christianity as Jesus described it. If you're not bringing season and, and, and helping to preserve this world that we're a part of, if you're not shining brightly, that's not Christianity as Jesus described it. There is no holiness but social holiness. To turn Christianity into a solitary religion is to destroy it. Was he way off? No. Look what, look what comes right after this on salt. The very next passage says this. You then are the light of the world. This is Matthew 5.14. You are the light of the world and a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Yep, you should be like a light. It's an individual light that's on a lampstand, absolutely, and take that to all corners of the world. But it's not a bad thing when you get a whole lot of us together because we can shine like a city on a hill. And that's the part of the metaphor that we want to press into in this series. How do we shine brightly together? And how do we do that well? And that's why next week, as you heard earlier in the service, we're going to fly up the directors from Emmanuel Children's Home. I got to spend time with them uh, Friday. got to spend time with them Friday I can't wait for you to get to actually meet them and not just hear about them. So we're bringing them up, and we'll talk about how can we shine brightly together in Juarez, Mexico. And then in two weeks, um, Tim Anderson's going to share how, how can we shine brightly together in our biggest city right here in this state, in Minneapolis. How can we shine brightly together in the Powderhorn neighborhood? So that's in two weeks. Well, today what we're going to talk about is how do we shine brightly together right here, right here in the Northeast Suburbs. So let's dive right in. If you have a note, uh, note sheet, why don't you pull that out and let's, uh, let's get to work. Shining brightly, it says at the top of your notes here, in the suburbs requires an attentiveness to best practices and a commitment to biblical principles. We're attentive to best practices here. Again, hear me clearly. I am not saying that we can neglect excellence at all. I'm not saying. I'm just saying that's the baseline. Because best practices matter, especially in an area like the one we live in. Great atmosphere, like they had at the Ace Banquet, that matters. Great music matters. Our website matters. Our messages and messaging matter. The way we greet and treat and seat people matters. The way we take care of their kids matters. Best practices matter, and we're attentive to them. But we're attentive to them, and we are committed to biblical principles, because that's what's most important. Why do I say that? I say that because what good is it for us to have 
greeters strategically placed at all of the right places, but not really welcome people into the family of God. Forget that then. Forget having greeters in the right places if we're not authentically welcoming people into the community of God. What good is it for me to give a well-crafted message if it's not a word from the Lord? If it's just my words crafted into a package? What good would it be if we had great musicians who just got up here and said, look at me, look at me? What good would that be? That's not worship leading. What good would it be if we had magnetic programs for kids and for teens and we had hundreds of kids coming, hundreds of teens coming, but all we did was entertain them? What good would that be? That would be unsalty salt. They could get that anywhere. What would, what's distinctive about us? So that's why we lock into biblical principles. And so let's look at seven right from the Sermon on the Mount. So these are all, in fact, they pretty much follow chronologically some of the principles that Jesus puts out here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. At least these are the jumping off points that we're going to use. So here are seven ways to shine in the suburbs. And before we dive into the list, I, I do want to say this. For those of you who are regulars here, this is not a rebuke. It is such a joy that I don't have to get up here on Sundays and assault y'all. It's so wonderful that, that that's not what I have to do. I, I've never been a part of a, of a congregation like this where more people, where you're so generous, where you are, are so willing to step up as God calls you to step up, and where the, the community center, those who aren't a part of this church, the community center, they see something different in this group. They've commented on so many times, the staff, they said, this is not like the other groups that we rent to. They see something different. So when you hear my words today, don't hear a rebuke. Instead, hear the voice of a coach who's a high jump coach, and it's a meet, and we just cleared five feet. And it's like, okay, now we're raising the bar. Here we go. Five, two, five, two. We can do this. We can do this, all right? So hear that voice rather than an assault this morning. So here we go. Seven ways that we can shine right here in the suburbs beyond the basics, beyond doing excellence. That's the given, but even the non-believers do that. Beyond volunteering, beyond giving generously, even, you know, the, the non-believers do that. Let's talk about being salty, all right? The first one is this, and I'd encourage you to write this in your notes. If you want to help us be salty, resolve your differences in a God-honoring way. If we do this, we will shine. I'm trying to do a really good job of this now. I, I was not good at this in the past. I still mess up in this um, from quite often. Um, but I'm trying to get this image in my head. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the first time in the book of Matthew where Jesus refers to God as Father. And then it's Father, 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 Father throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So I try to use that metaphor he gave us, and I think about, okay, when it comes to resolving differences, how, how do I want my kids to resolve their differences and to use that as a starting point because we're going to have differences, right? Where two or more are gathered, there will be differences, right? So, so when we have them, how do we resolve them? Well, I, I put in parentheses three different passages. These are examples of things that God instructs us to do. Here are daddy's instructions. Here's how I want you to resolve your differences. The first example there on, on, on the screens in your notes, Matthew 5.23, what that says is if someone has sinned against you, if so, or no, the first one is, if you've sinned against someone else. So if, if you've sinned against someone else, it says, if you have an offering, you're bringing it up to the altar, stop right there. You leave that offering, go back, and as much as it depends on you, go make things right. You leave the, the gift. Don't play church. 
if you've, if you've sinned against somebody, first go make things right. Then come back and do the, the whole holy thing, all right? So that's if someone, if you've sinned against someone. The next example then is if someone has sinned against you. And in that one, it says the first step is not to go tell everybody. The first step is not, do you know what brother so-and-so did? I will tell you so that you can pray for them. No. First step is what? You go to them privately, just you, and you say, hey, brother, hey, sister, um, this is something you did that I believe is wrong. And then if they don't listen, next step, then bring one other person. And then after that, it's church intervention. That's if someone has sinned against you. And then Titus 3.10 builds on all of these. And now we're into opinion. Titus 3.10 is now about opinion more than anything because it says if there's a divisive person, someone that's got to have their way, that thinks their way is right, you warn them once, you warn them twice, and that's it. Can you imagine if we had a community like that? Can you imagine that? In a world that solves its disputes with lawyers, guns, and money, what if we resolved our differences the way that Jesus taught us to? If we did that, we would shine like a city on a hill. So if you will help us shine in that way right here in the suburbs, I want to hear you say amen. 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 Okay, half of us. Half. All right, we'll go with that. I'll give you one more chance in case some more of you want in on this. Is there anyone else willing to say um, they will shine with that? If so, say I, amen. Amen. All right. Number two, number two. Here we go. Heavy stuff here. Next one's coming heavy also. If you want to help us shine in the suburbs, abstain from sexually charged media. Will that help us shine? Yes, because to say everyone else is doing it is not an exaggeration. I looked this up um, coming into this week. I knew the stats would be rough. I didn't know they'd be this rough. According to a study, according to the Barna Research Group, and I can show you which study I'm referring to if you question um, my study and resources here. Um, in a study conducted by the Barna Research Group, nearly two-thirds of American men and about one in five women view porn at least once a month. Now, I, I kind of knew that stat, but this is the one that blew me away. Can we put this one on the screens? When asked how often they view pornography, only 3% of Christian men and 13% of Christian women checked never. 3% of Christian men, 13%. How, and the, the question was, how frequently do you view pornography? Not have you ever in your life. How frequently? Only 3% said never. Again, hear this not as a rebuke, but hear this in a, come on, let's clear this bar. Jesus taught us a different way, didn't he? Jesus envisioned a different community than this. Here's, here's what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. This is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28. He said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Pornography is adultery for Christians. Jesus had a very different vision for his people. He envisioned a community of men who would be as faithful to their wives as Christ was to his church. He had an envision of a community of men where we wouldn't look at women as objects, but rather the way we'd look for women, we'd look out for women. We'd look out for women the way a good big brother looks out for little sister. That's the vision. Can you imagine what a beautiful vision that is? 
And then when it comes to women, you know, he, he said, he had this vision of a community of women where they would recognize, I have been purchased at a great price. No matter, in fact, not no matter what I've done, despite of what I've done, I've been purchased at a great price. I will honor God with my body. Can you imagine what, a, what kind of community that would be? Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? So, if you'll contribute to be a part of that community, can I hear you say amen? Amen. All right, number three. Don't join in with the haters and the cynics. All right, here's another one of my confessions for you. I almost wore this jersey today. I remember this one? Ron said, someday this is going to be an object lesson. It is. It is. I almost wore this today as my scarlet A for all of you. Um, but we had the dedication, so I thought I'd better dress up a little bit, right? I almost wore this. Whose jersey is this? Christian Ponders. He's a quarterback for the Vikings. The reason I almost wore this and how it relates to don't join in with the cynics, at my house, I've got two little girls who rarely ever watch football, but if someone has a really bad throw in our house, you know what they say? Nice throw, Ponder. You know where they got that? From Daddy. Because I'm so cynical on so many things, you know, whether it's politics, whether it's Sports, it's so easy for me to say, hey, you, did, you know, whatever, nice throw ponder kind of stuff. Can you imagine how we'd stand out as a community if we didn't engage in that as, as a group of people? Uh, there's a great quote, and we'll put it up on the screens here, from a pastor, Bill Hybels. I hold this guy in high regard. He says this about cynics. He says, cynics are a dime a dozen. They think being cynical, it's intellectually cool. But if you look beneath the surface... Cynicism is intellectually cowardly. It takes no courage whatsoever to tear down other people or ideas or make a skeptical remark. It takes no creativity to poke holes in things rather than offer support, encouragement, or a better idea. Cynicism doesn't engage reality. It sloughs it off with a cheap laugh. And this is so true. This next thing, cynicism is contagious. It has an insidious way of seeping undetected into our thoughts and our speech patterns. Will you tell yourself, I'm no longer going to be that man or that woman sitting on the bench taking pot shots at others who are actually doing things in this world? I'm going to move on from this cynical season, even if it means distancing myself from the cynics around me. So, if you're a Jesus follower, are you willing to extend grace to teachers? and principals, and bosses, and administrators, and politicians, and even NFL quarterbacks. Now hear me clearly, I'm not saying buy their jersey just to be a nice Christian. I'm not saying you should vote with, for people you disagree with. That's not my point at all. But can we at least on our Facebook pages and in our dialogue, can we refrain from the cynic and speak to the issues and, and those types of things? If we did that, can you imagine how we'd shine? Can you imagine if every one of the things that we're putting out there online, we've gone to the person first and we keep it about the issues and not about the people, that we don't get into personal attacks and all that kind of stuff. Can you imagine how we'd shine? So if you're with me, can I hear you say amen? Amen. All right, next one, extra mile. Some of you may not know this actually comes from the Bible, going extra mile. Here's where it comes from. It comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 41. And when Jesus gave the, his Sermon on the Mount, there was, it, the situation was Roman soldiers could make you carry something. 
for a mile. They could do more than that too. They could actually take your animals into their service to, 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 um, to do their work. They could take things from your house to use for their purposes. And what Jesus said is they ask you to go one mile, go two. Go that extra mile. How does that relate to the suburbs? In the, in the suburbs, a lot of times we look at the, our contracts, our legal obligations, and we say, how low can I go? You know, we look at our job descriptions and we go, oh, that's not in my job description. We look at, at, at something that we're required here, let's say, is renting this place. Hey, picking up trash in the parking lot, that's not part of our contract. What if we went the extra mile? Do you see how we'd shine? What if when we spilled salt all over the carpet, we tried to clean it up? What if when we were coming in from the parking lot, first of all, we parked in the far back to leave the spaces for the patrons? And what if then on our way in, if we saw trash, we picked it up? And what if we did that without someone asking us, but we just took initiative? And what if instead of just only greeting one another, when we say, now it's time to turn around and greet one another, what if that was just part of how we, how we rolled here? And we, we did our best to try to welcome people. Can you imagine if we went beyond just the minimum and we went the extra mile? Do you, know, do you realize how we'd shine? So if you're with me on going the extra mile, can I hear an Amen. Amen. All right, next one. Go all in on futures. Go all in on futures. In Matthew 6, 19 through 24, Jesus says, invest in eternal things. This world is passing. Don't get so excited about the things of this world. It's all going to pass away. Invest in heavenly things where there is not rust and moths and all that kind of stuff. Can you imagine a community where the things that we treasure most are the things that money can't buy? And if people joined us and they heard us getting excited about things, it wasn't a new this or that. But the things they heard us being excited about was life change that we saw in somebody else. Can you imagine how different we'd look from the world? So if you're with me on that, can I hear you say amen? Amen. amen. All right. Number six. Oh, we'd shine if we would seek shalom. We would shine if we would seek shalom. Shalom is a beautiful word. We'll, we'll unpack this hopefully in the first series of the new year. It's a word that means peace, but so much more than that. Most suburban people are so stressed. Can you imagine if when they came and they were among us, it was like, can you imagine how that would feel different than the world around them? Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, this is a very rough paraphrase. Don't be anxious about your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and you'll be okay. I think the Aaron Rodgers translation says R-E-L-A-X, right? Or should I not quote the Packers here in Minnesota, right? Um, just no worries about tomorrow. That's how Jesus taught us. Can you imagine how we'd shine in the suburbs if we were not overscheduled and not overwhelmed and not overcommitted and not overextended? Especially if we could couple number six with number five. What if we had a passion about things that are eternal and we had no worries about things that don't, aren't? you imagine how we shine? So if you're with me on Seek and Shalom, can I have an amen? Amen. I'm going to need your encouragement on that one, like a lot of you. All right, and then the last one, number seven. Will you choose accountability? Often in the suburbs, we only have accountability if someone says, you will be accountable to this. What if we sought it from one another? What if we really said, we are in this together. I'm accountable to you. You're accountable to me in all the right ways, not in the beat-up ways, not in the you missed the high bar ways, but in the I think you can do get over this bar kind of ways, right? We had an event uh, about a year and a half ago right down there at the pavilion. It was an event that was sponsored by the, the Shoreview Community Center. And we just said, hey, how can we help? And so they gave us some different things that we could do to help. Many of you were a part of that. 
And I got to talking to the mayor. She was there, and, and, and I said, you know, how, how could we as a church best help the community? And she said, well, churches ask that kind of question all the time. I'll tell you what I tell them. Help your people. Help your people. Take care of your people. Take care of one another, I think is the way she put it. Take care of one another. You know what Jesus taught us? You'll know my, you're my disciples if you love one another. Can you imagine how we'd shine if we were committed to each other, not out of some legal obligation, but because we're brothers and sisters in Christ? And we looked out for one another and we cared for one another in that kind of way. And we were accountable to say, hey, we're supposed to be shining brightly here, Chris, and you're ripping on Ponder all the time. How's that mesh? What if we did that? What if we did that? You know, I, I was, with the dedication, I'm, I was thinking about when Derek, um, he was trying so hard. I don't know if you could see it where you were, but Derek was trying so hard to say the right thing. Wasn't there something beautiful about that? He was trying so hard to just, okay, tell me what to say, I think he even said. Tell me what to say. What a pure spirit. What if we had that orientation towards God? You know, Father, I trust you so much. Tell me what to say, and I'll say. Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. I just want to honor you. Can you, can you imagine if we were all like that, how different that would be? And I, and I turned to Amber um, uh, during the, while we were singing, and I just said, do you, do you know what that says about you as a parent? That he trusts you guys that kind of way? That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It speaks to trust. Well, there's a quote by a guy named St. Francis of Assisi, and here's a guy that individually burned so brightly, we're still talking about him. We shouldn't be talking about this guy. He was a, he was a friar. I don't even know if he's an official monk, right? Catholic friar, 13th century. But this guy... There was something about him that was different. He, there were all kinds of monks back then. We're not hearing about so many of them. Usually when we're hearing about them, it's kind of the negative stuff that some of them did, you know, just how they were so focused on, on sacrificing for God that they would just hurt themselves, which is just really dis, dysfunctional. There was, there, that they would, they would hide from the rest of the world. There was all these kind of things. This guy, he, he stood out. There was something qualitatively different about him. He didn't pray because you're supposed to pray he didn't fast because you're supposed to fast. He didn't seek a vow of poverty because you're supposed to, to be generous. Here's what he, he devoured fasting like a man devours food. He plunged after poverty as men have dug madly for gold. And it is precisely the positive and passionate quality of this part of his personality that is a challenge to the modern mind. And this brings us to that last point that we have in our sheet. The reason we want to pursue Biblical principles is because biblical principles are best practices. Men like Francis of Assisi, they, they got that. He, and that's why he went after it like gold. He's like, I do not want to be encumbered by the things around me. So the more I can let go of this stuff, the happier I'm going to be. That's why he could go after that. Fasting, he's like, I'm not abstaining from food. I am feasting on things that are eternal. And he was able to make that switch. And can you imagine if we could do that as a group, if there were more of us who could come to a place where we could realize this, where it was real, where that little hopeful trust that we had when we said, Dad, you know, I, I want to say the right thing. Tell me what to say. What if we did that and we discovered along the way that this is what's best for us? All these things we're saying no to, it's best that we say no. All these things that we say yes, it's best that we say yes. Can you imagine being a part of a group like that? 
Can you imagine if our church was a church where we all resolved our differences in a God-honoring way, where we looked at each other the way God looks at us, where cynicism, it was called out, you know, and encouragement was encouraged, where no one had to be asked to go the extra mile, where there was an expectancy, oh, I can't wait for the life to come. This stuff, eh, knew this came out, okay, great, it'll help me be more efficient, but I'm not excited about that, I'm excited about eternity. What if peace was the norm? That would be Jamaica, you know? What if we were irrevocably committed to one another? Imagine if ours was a church through whom the good news was proclaimed and hope was restored and the lost were welcomed home where believers were challenged and resources were well stewarded and strangers became friends. What if this was a place where relationships were reconciled and those in need found support and ugly church politics found no foothold? What if this was a place where singles and families thrived Young people were trained in the ways they should go. If that was the case, not only would we be having a great time, but I think our neighbors would say, let me have a bite of that burger because it looks really, really good. That's the kind of community we want to be a part of. And it's not an exaggeration to say it would be a taste of heaven. If we lived like that, it would taste more like heaven. Well, I want to close with something I haven't really told many people before until this morning. Uh, true story of something that happened not too long ago. I used to be at another church before coming here, and I had been there for like 10 years, but I knew a transition was coming. And I was still on staff there, and we had an event right down the road here at Gospel Hill Camp. And we had an event. We were training our um, youth leaders. We were training and pouring into them and trying to help them uh, to, 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 get some, to get resourced up to minister to our teens. And some of you actually were probably there for that, this event. Well, it was night, and I, I felt like I was just supposed to go down to the lake. So I went down to Snail Lake right there, Gospel Hill Camps right down the road. They got a beach. Went down to the Snail Lake. I, I went out to the dock, and I found myself just kind of staring at this hill that's probably right about here. There's a big hill right across from Snail Lake there, and it was all lit up. It was a you know, city on a hill. There were bright lights shining, and I felt like there was something that was impressed upon me to say, this is what I'm calling you to. And I wasn't sure what that meant. By this point, Laura and I knew that we'd probably be going, walking forward with the covenant family of churches, but I'm like, what does that mean? There was an opening at a church in Minneapolis. I mean, that's that direction. Didn't seem like a good fit for me, but maybe that's it. I'm being called to that city or that church in Minneapolis. Little did I know, fast forward a couple years, our youth group meets at that camp. It wasn't somewhere that direction. It was this city right here. I want to do something, says God. I want to do something here. I want to plant a new church. Not because, they, not because the other churches aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, but because I want to do this thing that's going to shine brightly. And it's not, I'm not calling you to go do that in Minneapolis. I'm calling you to do it literally right here, literally this camp. And then right down the road, not even a quarter mile, I didn't know God was going to open up the Shoreview Community Center for us. This church is God's idea, and he wants to shine like that city on a hill. All kinds of light coming from it. And these are a few examples of things that I gave you here of ways we can do that together. So let's pray to that end as we close. Would you please stand and let's pray uh, to that end. Father, um, we come before you now, and, and we pray that you'll make us more like a child. Make us more um, like that that like we saw in Derek, where he's able to trust you that much, 
where he can yield his life to you and he can just say, tell me what to say because I want to do the right thing. Help us to trust you that, you'll, that you love us enough and you know enough to tell us what the right thing is through your word, through the work of your spirit, through one another. Help us to trust you in that way that we can say yes to everything that you invite us into. And Lord, I pray for those who've never really tasted you before. Lord, I pray that, that even today you would open their hearts and minds to your vision for what the world could be if we all followed the example and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. And Lord, out of that conversation that they have with you, may they come to that place where they yield their whole lives to trusting you and your goodness. Thank you for shining like a beacon on a hill when you hung on the cross for us. And we pray that that would inspire us to trust you with our entire lives as well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.